Well, welcome to HSV Progressive. Um, uh, today we are having a conversation with Beth, um, a friend of mine. Well, actually, she's the sister of Catherine, who has appeared on the show more than once. And um, and I don't know, I don't even know how to pronounce your last name. How do you pronounce <laughs> it? This is always the first question I get. So <laughs> it's paw tan, like a dog's paw and a suntan. Paw tan. Oh, paw tan. Uh, you know, that's got to be um, a, a, a sort of a, a Creole uh, Cajun flavoring there on the on that spelling. It is. It is. It is Creole. It's French. I think patin means to skate or glide gracefully. Oh yes, and pat so patine is to ice skate. Yes, in French. So, uh, yeah, and but it is. It's a Creole. It's a Creole last oh, name. Oh yes. Yeah. 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 Sure. I, it, it's like uh, I had a student once from Haiti, and mm -hmm. uh, you have a degree in French. I couldn't understand her at all. <laughs> Right, right. And I yeah. have a hard, really hard time even with uh, Quebecois, you know, uh, mm. I, in anyway, this is not what this podcast is about. <laughs> <laughs> but I did mention before we started that I have this linguistic bend. So <laughs> you're not surprised. Right. right. <laughs> well, um, one time I was riding out uh, on the on the arsenal with a visiting scientist who was doing some work at NASA uh, with mm -hmm. uh, me and um, he was French. And, uh, you know, uh, the roads out on the arsenal are named after various and sundry old, you know, guys, you know, right. Uh, which is something I want to talk to you about, but anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so there's the, you know, names are just weird to wit, you know, and, yes. and uh, so we drove by a sign and neither one of us knew how to pronounce this guy's name. And, uh, and he pronounced it really American. And I pronounced it really French, where he's the French guy, and I'm the American. And we both recognized it as not our native language and so we went to our next language to try to pronounce it it was so interesting that that happened anyway i don't know what's wrong with me we're supposed to be talking about you and and uh, epistenicide and all of this kind yeah. of great stuff could you start us off please by uh introducing yourself a little bit please please yeah so uh i'm Catherine's sister beth i think that's a good way to start <laughs> I'm a professor at Syracuse University, and I grew up here in Huntsville. I have a background in education. I was a teacher for many years and then a school librarian, and I was a school librarian during Hurricane Katrina, and I lost my school library. And, you know, I had a lot of experiences rebuilding the library and kind of rebuilding the reading culture there and started to ask a lot of really bigger questions about information science and kind of and, and information and the kinds of information we need to make good decisions for our well-being and how libraries specifically can help support people make those decisions. And so I started to continue to think about these things more deeply and ended up pursuing a PhD at the University of Washington um, where my dissertation was on community resilience and libraries. And for the last several years, I've been working on a project about resiliency and libraries and also doing this other theoretical research and practical work around epistemicide. And, um, you know, my, I think I am a fifth generation Huntsvillian 
And so our roots are deep here in Huntsville. And I think a lot specifically about Huntsville's history, whose voices we amplify, how do we tell those stories? How do we preserve the stories? And how do we make sure that we're telling these stories in an engaging way for, for generations to come? So, and, and, and specifically like how libraries and, and those kinds of information institutions can help or hurt in, in pursuing this kind of work. Uh, in fact, I can't remember even what podcast it was. Oh, I know what it was. I listened to some podcasts, okay, but I was listening to Economic yeah. Update. Mm-hmm. I think it was, and he had a repeat person on, and that guy actually was talking about the power of the local library, right? Right. Um, and 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 um, especially in the context of our uh, of um, uh, our democracy and mm-hmm. human rights. And, you yeah, know, and, and it's not something that um, um, that we think about very much, you know, and, and but it's interesting to me that libraries are under attack, you know, like you're not allowed to have those books and right, all that kind of stuff. Right. Somebody must recognize their power. Yeah. So, you know, it's so you know, I fell into librarianship. I was like a kid who always loved to read and would get like in trouble for reading a little too much. And as I was a school teacher, I was like kind of tired. And I was like, well, the librarian gets like an hour and a half of planning time a day and we get an hour and a half of planning time a week. So like that would just be a better move (laughs) for me and my day-to-day happiness. So I was like, I'm going to apply and go become a librarian. But in my first class, uh, Dr. Alma Dawson was talking and, you know, she really made me understand that librarians were information activists and that we, you know, in an information world to to provide information for free is a democratizing act, right? And to make sure that we have quality information for free is really important because the bad information is free. It's out there. Yep. We, we like to say, just go Google it, but like, Google is filled with bad information. And so having somebody that can help you critically evaluate that is so important. And I got, I got my master's degree 20 years ago now, but you know, if we think back to that time in 2003, the big, one of the big political considerations at that time was about the Patriot Act and the libraries at that time were under attack as well, because people were coming and asking us for library records. And so one of the Mm. things that the librarians decided was like, well, once you return a book, we're just not going to keep those records and we can't give you records we don't keep. And so, you know, I think from that moment- that's just subversive. Oh my God. So (laughs) subversive. From that moment, I understood how subversive, how we can really like be subversive in our policies. You know, we, we have to follow the law, right? We are- most often tax funded organizations, mm-hmm. but the kinds of ways we write our policy can really subvert some of those other things. So I came up in that era of librarianship of really thinking about the Patriot Act and privacy and intellectual freedom, people's rights to information and specifically rights to information to make their lives better. And, and so I am not shocked or surprised to see attacks on libraries. I would argue with anybody till the end of the day that reading changes us. It makes us more empathetic. It helps us grow. It helps us understand different perspectives. We can't have all the experiences. We can't know all the things. Or the people. 
Yeah, yeah. So the more, uh, you know, there's my, this my listeners our, uh, yeah. totally have heard me argue that everybody's yeah. first college degree should be in the liberal arts because you need to read a lot. You and need to read because a lot. it builds empathy, number one. And, and, and then there's yep. a good old critical thinking aspect too, you know. Sure. If you like one have to things, read something and then write a paper about it. Yeah. One of the know. things I tell my intro to library students, I just finished teaching last night. So they're, mm -hmm. they're heavy on my mind, but um, is, you know, our library should be a mirror, a window and a door, and it should be a mirror and that you should see yourself reflected in the kinds of services, the kinds of books we have. So it should be the kind of materials that help you get to know yourself better. It should mm -hmm. be the kind of materials that let you learn about other people and then like give you the tools to kind of collectively work on those problems that our society society is facing and and we need to be building on all three of those levels as we're thinking about services and materials i i that's a fabulous metaphor beautiful yeah. thank you claw it's uh rudine bishop sims not not mine well, <laughs> but yes. i don't i don't care whose it is it's fabulous <laughs> well you know librarians yeah, we're gonna I, we're gonna give yeah, you, you gotta references. have you yeah, right you gotta get your references right ibid <laughs> at all that's right that's right <laughs> um um uh, so you mentioned that you have a long, your family, your fifth generation. Right. So, uh, um, and this is a supposedly, to a large extent, a very locally focused um, podcast. Yes. And I think you maybe have some interesting history in your family yeah. that you could maybe... Uh, uh, as a way to talk about, uh, to build up to talking about how people know things and remember things and information is stored and stuff like that. Could you maybe tell us, you know, uh, some of your yeah. family history here? Absolutely. So, you know, I think going back a few generations, but I'll, I'll start with my grandfather, Dr. Sonny Wellington Herford III. Um, he was born here on Huntsville off of Memorial Parkway down off of Blue Springs, kind of over in that area. Mm -hmm. And um, kind of like, I don't know, there used to be a Dairy Queen over there for a while. Um, it's, it's <laughs> like a car place now. Uh -huh. But um, he, he grew up there and he was a black child in the 1930s in Alabama. And he knew from a really early age he wanted to be a doctor. He went to the school downtown and it was surrounded by the city dump on three sides. He always talks about that and, you know, the kind of drastic difference between how many children started school with him and then ended up actually graduating from high school, right, is, is pretty startling. But, you know, like we all live in Alabama, so we know what it's like when it's hot and we can imagine what it's like without the air conditioning and having open windows and trying to learn. But Two of the things that he always commented on was that his school didn't have a science lab and it didn't have a library. And he also wasn't allowed to go into the public library at that time. We, I think Huntsville had the Carnegie Library built in 1916. I might have that date a little bit wrong, but around then. So there's this beautiful building downtown filled with all of this knowledge that my grandfather really wanted to access, but he couldn't go into the library. And he was particularly upset by that because his family paid taxes. Mm -hmm. And so he felt as a tax paying member of society, he should absolutely have access to those materials. Mm -hmm. And there was, um, 
1940, we did get a library for Black citizens in Huntsville. Dulcina DeBerry came here from North Carolina and opened a couple of branches like um, in the basement of one of the Baptist churches and then at the community center. But it was always kind of um, moving around. It didn't have a permanent location. Often the Black citizens of Huntsville had to fund it. So it it really was um, not the same kind of institution as the Carnegie Library was. Mm -hmm. And as, as he thought about education, he went to Alabama A&M, but mm -hmm. they didn't have a pre-med program there. No, they're A&M. They're A&M. And, &M. and <laughs> yeah. so he, he talked to one of his professors and they're like, I'll help you do this biology stuff, but I don't know what classes you need. So he thought about applying. I just think it's so brilliant and so much hustle. He, he applied to the University of Alabama and Auburn University. Uh -huh. He knew that they were going to reject him because he was black, uh -huh. but he also knew that they would send him a course catalog. Uh, and so if he got his hands on a course catalog, he would know what kinds of classes he needed to take to fulfill a pre-med degree. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, like when everybody's course catalogs are so easily available online, online today now, yeah. and syllabi and recorded lectures and all the readings, right? Imagine just having to do that to get a list of classes. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't have to imagine it because that's what it was like <laughs> when I was undergraduate the first yeah. time yeah when I when I was undergrad I think we, we had to go to a room and then we used the phone after that to register but it was definitely well, a paper catalog figure oh I remember standing in lines yep. to register yeah yep. and uh so he he ended up going to Meharry because in 1940 there was no place for a black person to get a medical degree in the state of Alabama and I think when we think about the interconnectedness of systems and these types of oppression just a like nobody before 1940 being able to get a medical degree like think about what that does for healthcare in the black community and so he went to Meharry got his medical degree did his internship in Chicago and met my grandmother there and wanted to bring her back to Alabama to open his practice and she didn't want to do it um you know she's like why would we leave Chicago we can go to the movies we can eat at restaurants and he said you know we if we don't do it who's going to do it. And so he came back to Huntsville and along with John Cashin and Reverend Ezekiel Bell, they worked to start the community service committee, which whose goal was to integrate Huntsville, desegregate and integrate Huntsville. They had all kinds of programs around blockbusting. So the idea of blockbusting, you wouldn't sell your house to a black person to kind of keep neighborhoods all white. Oh, mm -hmm. So they'd get an ally to mm -hmm. buy the house and mm -hmm. then that white ally would turn around and sell the house to a black family yeah so they had programs like that oh my gosh you come obviously from a long line of subversives oh yeah a long <laughs> line yeah we were raised to think this way i think that that's absolutely true um and i think not just about the way yeah, that that's just be such subversive. a gift because i was absolutely not raised to think that way yeah 100 oh, percent. Yeah. so well, I'll tell you, you know, our dad raising us too. So he's a second generation yep, activist yep. and was, you know, raised by my grandfather. And, you know, I can remember when like um, Rod Stewart played Sun City. So in oh. South Africa mm -hmm, during apartheid, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. musicians had to decide were they going to play in a segregated club? 
we would get sat down. They would talk to us about Rod Stewart and Queen. We were no longer allowed to live them, listen to them. If somebody, if some kind of CEO from Texaco or where Exxon got caught saying racial slurs, credit cards were like cut up in front of us. Like we don't order Domino's pizza because they're pro-life, right? Like making sure that the way that we economically spend our money is supporting the interests that we have and my, and my mother was like well if it's in the store it can't be bad right, <laughs> right. i mean literally it's she said that to me you know a way different level of criticality and yes. just looking behind like looking at that layer behind and i think you know when we talk about the civil rights movement especially in huntsville you know we talk about brave people but who comes to the top a reverend, a dentist, a doctor, but also contractors, beauticians, we often miss that economic freedom that people had if they owned their own businesses or practices. Mm -hmm. Because what we saw in the civil rights movement and what we continue to see now is like economic pressure put upon you by bosses and folks in power who say in which ways you can participate in this kind of protest, civil rights, unrest. Can, can I just add also yeah. that since yeah. Reagan, um, yeah. uh, people who work for themselves have a, have to pay uh, more taxes. So yeah. it's, they don't like people working for themselves, period. Okay, right. so that sounds a little yeah. bit conspiracy theory using the general they, but uh, I I know what, yeah, go they're, on, they're, I'm sorry. It, it, no, 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 don't be sorry. I mean, I think, you know, it is often not the poorest amongst us that can stand up to these systems, that can hire lawyers, that can have the longevity to make it all the way through a court system. Because even if you have the money for the lawyer, the kind of pressure that you can receive as a family, right, can mm -hmm. really become intense. And so mm -hmm. not just do we want to stand up for what's right, but are we going to be able to withhold that backlash that's mm -hmm. going to be coming from all different angles? Mm -hmm. And if you are in a position of economic security, you're better, you're better able to withstand those things. And that's mm -hmm. something that I don't hear discussed often enough when we're, when we are talking about who led the civil rights movement, but, but specifically here in Huntsville. And, um, so my, my, my grandfather and the community service committee, they held protests around town, poster walks. They brought Martin Luther King here to speak in, uh, March of 1962. They were getting a lot of attention, but most often the Huntsville newspaper was ignoring them. The mirror, the black Huntsville paper would report on things, but we needed everybody to understand the story. And so getting the Alabama A&M students arrested was not making the news. It was not a big enough deal. So the community service committee decided, hey, what if we get some fancy ladies arrested? What if we get some prominent women arrested? Mm -hmm. Will that make the news? And so Joan Cashin, along with her daughter, Cheryl Cashin, who was one years old at the time, and my grandmother, Martha Adams Herford, was six months pregnant at the time, went to the local Walgreens and tried to sit at the lunch counter and order a coffee and a cheat and a hamburger. And they were arrested. Um, a rever Reverend Ezekiel Bell was with them. And so was another student who had been arrested several times so that she would be able to walk them through the process so they wouldn't uh -huh. be alone. Uh -huh. And, and, you know, one of the things 
you know, in talking about going through the documents and putting these stories back together, like I've heard some of this, you know, I, I've heard them talk about it. There's, there's video footage in my grandfather's documentary of my grandmother going to jail and she's six months pregnant. So, you know, you can tell it makes national news and even international news. And it becomes this real like pivotal moment. But when I'm going back through their papers, I find her lawyer agreement that she signed in January. And it just reminds me so much. And she got arrested in April. Mm -hmm. It reminds me so much of how strategic they were Mm -hmm. and how thoughtful they were and how none of these things were accidents and kind of the the false myths that we sell about Rosa Parks being tired and sitting down and not talking about how she was the secretary of the NAACP, right? We, We collectively minimize the power of the people and how we retell these national stories. Mm -hmm. And we do that intentionally because if we understood how powerful collectives are, those in charge would be in trouble. uh, 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 Like you don't want to expose the strength of community and like-minded groups of like-minded people. Um, be, uh, uh, because uh, because we have this myth of the of the power of the rugged individual in this right, country for right. one thing you know which yeah. really gets on my nerves <laughs> uh, it's the worst I mean you know what I hate you already mentioned linguistics but like you know the myth of pulling yourself up by the bootstrap the funny thing about that whole metaphor is that when we used it originally it meant it was used to describe something that was absolutely impossible, impossible. yeah and so we've bastardized that phrase because we've lost touch with linguistic etymology and we make it I mean I don't know it doesn't make any sense and and it's so frustrating to see those kinds of phrases be misused and 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 rallied around when that's the opposite of that is what the truth somewhere between those things is where the truth lies yeah yeah Yeah. so and I'll 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 kind of get to the end of this, but after, (laughs) after they, they worked, uh, after my grandmother got arrested, they integrated the restaurants here in Huntsville. We have great videos of, of my family becoming the first black family to integrate restaurants in the state. They integrated the bathrooms, the courthouses, the hotels, the rolling skate, the rolling rink, the parks. And then that wasn't enough. And and one of the things that Martin Luther King had told them when he visited is that you've got to get the schools integrated. Uh-huh. You've got to get the kids playing together before all of these external biases have really seeped into their brains. And so the Unitarian Church downtown organized a preschool for Black students that had never really played with white students and vice versa. Um, and that year... St. Joseph's School, which turned into Holy Family now, they reverse uh-huh. integrated. So that was a black school and they started to allow students, white students that year in 1963. Uh-huh. 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 And then um, my family sued the Board of Education and they won that lawsuit in August of 1963. And uh-huh. so typically at that time, school started after Labor Day weekend. And when my gran- when my grandfather took my dad to register for school, the highway patrolmen were there and governor George Wallace, you know, segregation now segregation 
then, uh, now forever had sent the state yeah. patrolman to keep my father from registering they were followed by the clan that day on their way home um and they ended up having to go back to federal court again and the federal court demanded that those schools be opened and so on september 9th in 1963 my dad sonny wellington herford the fourth became the first black person to integrate schools and as a librarian, as a teacher, as a historian, as someone who thinks about storytelling and activism and has like grown up, you know, at the feet of listening to these stories, you know, what do I do is I look in our state archive to see what kind of information we have about this. You know, the, the curriculum says a student should know about the civil rights movement. But if you look in our digital archives, they only have two exhibits that are talking about my dad or my grandfather mm -hmm. and I think the first time I looked there was one now there's about three or four items in there but just the idea that our state archive could be so neglectful about these stories that are really all of our stories you know in the history and how Alabama has changed and um, oh, in 1920, uh, in 2020, they came out and said, you know, the reason that this happened is because at our archive, so it's the Alabama Department of History and Archives, mm -hmm. they have intentionally collected the history of white and Confederate Alabama, mm -hmm. while simultaneously ignoring the history of Black Alabama by not committing resources to preserving those stories. And so, I want to, uh, 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 what your dad what, uh, graduated from Butler High, right? Yes. Yes. What In year? 75. Yeah. I was there. Okay. At the same time. And I do, I just like you said, it's our history. So I just want to interject that I went to Butler for yes. half a year. Yes. I was, I was not, a, uh, I, I was in 75. I would have been, um, well, I was only there for my let me think sophomore year. I was a sophomore, and uh, I and that I remember. You know, there were. I just want to say, um, it, it was such a strange experience for me too because I can't, I had been living and growing up uh, in Saudi Arabia, where I was a minority, uh, not um, not. I, 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 honestly, people did throw rocks at me. Some people, mm -hmm. you know, some of the native uh, Arabs uh, did not like us being there. Um, but but it's not. But it, it, it they didn't dislike white people, though, mm -hmm. you know, um, so it wasn't it was more of a cultural bias than a than mm -hmm. a racial thing uh but it but anyway I, I i definitely was a minority as far as race was concerned mm -hmm. um insofar as you can consider european white looking people like me to be a separate race from arabs sure. some people you know argue that um yeah. uh but i certainly felt completely different uh, they spoke a different language and everything then from right. there i went to england <laughs> and i went to catholic school boarding school in England for a while and I you know I all all of, all of a sudden all the black people around me were speaking English but with this really strange heavy accent right, and I was like right. oh this is really freaky you know yeah yeah and then I came to Huntsville and I went to Butler High School and the riot they had all the riot yeah. gates in that school yep. because yep. they're like the previous year before I got there 
there had been race riot stuff going on. And I know your dad was involved in that. And yeah. the, I remember being told, and these are things I didn't understand at all. I had no contact, Alabama context right. at all, you know? Right. And I remember some guy saying, you can't wear a Confederate flag here at school. You can't have it on your clothes or anything or a picture of it. And, and I was like, I was just like freaked out. Like, wow, people think about things like that. I didn't even know, you know, it's and, so funny because it's literally on their class rings. Uh, yeah. I did I not mean, graduate from there. They're there, the so. rebels. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, yep. But yeah, but I, I, I do have pictures of some of those protests and everybody kind of marching with Confederate flags. And, uh, my dad was student class president that year, 75, 75 or 76. I could, uh -huh. I was born in 77. So it was before I was born, but I, okay, I think yeah. 75. Um, and I, I remember, um, the, the, the so uh, I'm, I'm like come to Butler High School and I'm like, oh, I don't know. any, And it was huge to me. It was like this enormous sure. school. It is. Um, and yes. uh, and and so I, uh, somebody takes me to my homeroom and I just go to the homeroom and I sit down in the homeroom. <laughs> it was the homeroom was segregated. Mm -hmm. uh, the black kids sat on a di the different side from the white kids. It took me probably about three months before I realized I was sitting with the black kids. I didn't even, I was so freaked out. And I had lived in, in Arabia where I was, you know, I, <laughs> I mm -hmm. didn't even notice that I was doing that, you know? So uh, I don't know. It was, but uh, it, it was a weird, a, a whole weird experience for me, but there were things going on. And I, and, oh, yeah. and I just wanted to, I was there when your dad was there. I, yeah, 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 yeah. He um, so he he integrated Fifth Avenue School. So when he was about six, and uh -huh. and went, hmm, I'm forgetting what middle school he went to, and then went to high school at Butler. Um, and you know, one of the when you were talking about high school, it reminds me I went to Bob Jones for my freshman year of high school before I also went to boarding school. Uh -huh. But um, I remember in my homeroom we i had homeroom in the gym and i guess on our rosters it had our names and our race oh and really I just, I just remember that the teacher would kind of count how many kids and she'd always say like okay we've got 10 black kids 10 white kids and one other and i was the other because i was mixed and it was like such a weird like and then she was Why? like, and yeah. then said like the worst of thing that we do, one of the worst things that we do. And she said, I'm a little bit native in my background. So, and then, so she said two others and, you know, so I guess so that I didn't feel like I was the only one, but also it just makes it worse. And like, now you're pretending, right? Like you're, <laughs> it. So anyways, that I, uh, well, and, you know, you were mentioning, too, about what uh, Dr. King said about we got to mm -hmm. get the kids young and yeah. playing together. And I will tell you, honestly, I, I was a, um, for like grades. I started out in school in, in Florida mm -hmm. and uh, um, central Florida. And I had that, uh, you know, when I uh, uh, I went we were integrated, mm -hmm. but. But 
the black kids drink at a different fountain from me, yeah. not because yeah. they had to, but because yeah. when we lined up, that's the way we lined up. Yeah. We kind of really didn't play together. Um, I was taught all kinds of stuff. I just, it's just, oh. There's a really great book called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And um, it talks a lot about the nature of self-segregation mm -hmm. and why there are moments in which people who are racially marginalized find comfort within the same look, group. It, it, living in Saudi Arabia, I experienced that. Yeah. We didn't hang out on the, on the, you know, open society hardly right. very right. much at all. Right. Uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, what a great, uh, and, when we were there to start with, there wasn't a commissary and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So we were in a better position that we had to learn how to go and get groceries and stuff. Mm -hmm. But the subsequent, when there was a commissary and a PX and everything, there are a lot of people that came to Saudi. It, this happens still all over the world. Americans right. go and they never quit, learn anything about not being American. Right. Right. It's, it's so, it's a travesty, you know? Yeah. Um. But, but that's a different kind of segregation. I I wasn't a yeah. disadvantaged group, right, uh, right. you know, segregating right. off. Uh, but but I understand the comfort of mm -hmm. uh, uh, of it. You know, a minority, just the comfort. Uh, I understand it from being an activist. You right. Know? Yeah. I need to hang out with some people that have the same opinion as me because otherwise I'm going to become completely hopeless. You know. Right. No. I I think that that I think that that's absolutely true. And I. You know, I, I, I think it's important that we understand, you know, not every space has to be, not every space, not every book, not every song, not every anything has to be for everybody all the time. And the general entitlement uh, folks feel and like they're, oh, I'm entitled to access or I'm entitled to be in these spaces oh, or yeah. amongst mm -hmm. different people, right? Like it's important for us to understand the benefits of of giving folks space from time to time. Oh, yes. Or, or at the very least for not judging that desire as as something negative for you when it likely has nothing to do with you. Yes. Uh, um, and um, uh, I, I think it's a, a, a biological thing at some level, mm. you know. Um, I, I think that that's probably true. So, you know, I already said I was the only other in my high school class in my mm -hmm. homeroom. And, you know, I, I have five aunts. My dad has five younger sisters. I don't quite look like my aunts or my grandma because they are full black women. I don't mm -hmm. look like my mom. Mm -hmm. And so like growing up and like kind of figuring out concepts of beauty when we often kind of see beauty in the women around us or the people we see on tv me constructing that was like a really different experience and you know when i went to south when i went to louisiana first and there was a whole group of creole people where if i didn't tell you where i was from you could just presume that i was creole that was the first experience that i had <laughs> where my race wasn't questioned constantly and you, then you, when I you went weren't to like, Chile, oh, the other. <laughs> yeah. And when I went to Man. Chile, if I didn't open my mouth, I looked like everybody else on the train. And it was the first, you know, and I think if you are black 
you have had an experience culturally where you are with all black people if you are white you have had an experience where you are culturally all with white people yeah a lot a lot (laughs) a lot yeah Um, you know if you go to the bank or you go into a medical right like we get used to those kinds of things but if you're not all of one of those things you rarely get to experience that and so that yeah the relief of not looking different just blending in on the bus uh, on the subway in Chile was like a really remarkable experience for me that I couldn't you know the privilege of assimilation and getting mm-hmm. to hide yeah in the crowd is, is a thing I don't know about. yeah it's it's that's wow that's really wow wow it's, a thing that, that you don't know about so yeah, maybe I mean, this you know that's the privilege and the perspectives right and like this is why you know forever in my classes I will pitch cultural humility because like we can have the experiences we can have and we can read the books we read but like there's also all of these things that we cannot know and we cannot have those experiences and there's nothing wrong like that's not there's nothing wrong with that right Um, yeah it's just us kind of becoming more more humble and having more humility about hey we don't know all the stuff well and I would like to say that um in activist circles we have we a lot of the groups that I get involved with are white as can be yeah and I wish that there was a way for us to make it more comfortable to be more inclusive. I I I want it to come this way, you know. I'm not saying I need to get in to mm-hmm. the other groups. I get that. But right. boy, I would love to see us be more include whatever it is that needs to happen. I don't know how to make it happen, but man, that would just be you're talking about collective action. I just can't imagine anything that would be much better than, uh, you know, being able to get that. Well, anyway, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, um, you know, I always think about who is in our sphere of influence, who do we have the power to like care for and, and empower and, how can they do that for the next group of folks? Right. And the more that we can do that with that ripple effect, the the better we can build like a stronger collective. And it has to happen in a lot of ways. It has to happen with a lot of grace for other people, but especially for ourselves. I think a lot of people are worried about making mistakes as we try to like engage in activism or, or doing a lot of things. Right. So it'll keep you from taking risks, but you know, we, we have to find ways where we can take small risks. And, yeah, well, and, and you, you already t- talked about the taking uh, the being self, you know, self-employed and that kind of stuff being uh, help in that kind of way. And yeah. it, it's it, it's just tough out there to find ways to take those risks. It really is. And yeah. I happen to believe that for to a large extent, that's by design. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's true. You know, I am at Syracuse, right? Mm-hmm. So I am at a R1 research university and mm-hmm. all of the things that those entail. And mm-hmm. I work within a system that I find really unjust and highly problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot about, right, my responsibilities to 
point to the issues, call out the issues, name the issues, and then the ways in which I'm specifically trying to work towards fixing those problems. And I think, you know, this is part of that tension and challenge that all of us face is how do we, it's, it's hard to change systems if we're not playing in them at all. Um, it's probably almost impossible, but also once you're part of the system, disentangling everything also becomes super muddy and, and dangerous. You know, I, I have to submit in a couple of months that I want to be reviewed for tenure. So like, I was about to bring up tenure. Am you know, I, going I did to not get understand as, yeah, as an as undergraduate, I... I did not understand what tenure was and yeah. what I, I, I tended to really resent it. You know, I didn't understand that it was giving you academic freedom. Um, yeah. And and then and so now I, I, I get it, you know, and I've only ever been an adjunct mm -hmm. uh, instructor, you know, so I forget it, you know, uh, hence I'm working for myself now, you know, I. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, uh, um, uh, but um it, but then there's so you know I I my resentment as an undergrad was you know well there's what if you're a crappy teacher you need to be able to sure. be you know uh, and and there's a whole other side to that too like you know as an undergrad what do you know why are you yes. you know yeah. I mean but on the other hand there are like you, you my instructor doesn't show up for classes so you, there's definitely it, it's a give it's a balancing act. Uh, yeah, but think, now you know, they 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 use the 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 um the anti woke people are mm -hmm. saying that people with tenure have all of this freedom to to promulgate all of these liberal ideas you know or whatever and I just don't know what universe they're talking about you know well <laughs> I, I, they're making that up yeah because okay. it it's dog whistles and lies okay, <laughs> i mean okay. so yeah like don't try to rationalize things that are completely rational you will never be able to get to the bottom of that one um i think you'll be spinning forever trying to get get well welcome solved. to my world <laughs> yes you'll be spinning forever trying to solve that and i mean and joy i think that that's part of like who's in our sphere of influence and i think folks who will just point to education as woke is not somebody that I'm going to spend any time talking to or trying to convince. My yeah. energy is much better spent other places with people who might not understand or might have misconceptions. But like, if that is, if you are down that rabbit hole, like I, I tell my class, you know, like I can't fix my racist uncle Larry. I'm not gonna, we're not gonna agree. We're gonna fight. I'm not going to spend my energy trying to convince him, but like, I can have good talks with other people in my family who are like, don't think about these things or like, haven't considered this. That that's where I'm going to spend my time when I'm thinking about education and activism. The other folks, you know, like I always think about like, if, if we're friends and we get in an argument and I'm trying to like talk my way through it, I care about you. Cause otherwise I'm, going to walk away. And, you know, I think that that kind of same thing with, you know, you, you're not going to find me on a diversity committee unless we are working towards transformative equity and like anything short of that is not worth my time. Uh -huh, um, I'm not uh -huh. doing diversity one-on-one 
and I'm not spending time arguing semantics with people who don't oh God, believe yeah. racism exists. Oh my gosh, I can't even. Oppression and who real. say things like, well, they can just boot, pull themselves up by their own boot, bootstraps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, if you take one of my classes, I have an inclusivity statement that everybody has to follow. And, you know, it says a lot of my class rules, but I'm like, you know, imperialism, colonialism, capitalism, racism, those things exist. We're not arguing about the existence of these things in this class and you know these are assumptions we are moving forward with and you know that's one of the ways and you know is that me quashing <laughs> academic freedom in my own way like I don't know I guess maybe a little bit but like I'm laying out these assumptions that we're going to work or or maybe it's you just having healthy boundaries you know well yeah also healthy boundaries um you know and and my number one rule is uh throw sunlight not shade um, it's our job, especially when we're in a classroom to help each other grow. And that even if we are coming with misunderstandings about some of those oppressions, it's, it's our job to collectively help each other understand, not agree, but, but understand. Right. And so uh -huh. we can do that with care and helping each other grow and kind of having this assumption that we're all here for the right reason, even if we're not going to end up in the same place. And we can, we don't always have the safety of that. Like face social media is a great example, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's a great place for shade, um, but, yep. but not my classroom. Yeah. Um, or uh, how about you can punch up, but not punch down. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> that's a good, that that's a good rule. Well, and yeah. it, 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 you know, it makes me think about my work, which is, you know, what I was saying about tenure, like I spend a lot of time writing about the harms that we have done as information professionals and as librarians and as people who have trained librarians and teachers in the past. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to get tenure, I have to get people that I don't know in my field to say that my work is good and strong, you know, and like, are they going to do that when I've been critical of, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, it, that is the risk that I have taken in the last five years is that I'm not willing to be silent about these things. Um, well, and and, I, uh, I, 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 I talk about integrity on this mm -hmm. podcast, not infrequently too. And to me, that's, that's kind of everything, you know? Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to see in the next year and a half. Yeah. Good, good story. luck. Good luck because, well, anyway, you know, you know, um, but this is totally reminding me uh, talking about the history and everything mm -hmm. um, of a conflict that came up on our city council recently mm -hmm. about streets that are getting named. Mm. And um, my councilman, Devin Keith meant pointed out that, if you look into the past to find people that, you know, were big wigs or whatever, uh, um, founders or, or movers and shakers, there's a, a whole, you know, gender and race that you're not going to see in the past. Right. So, so they're not going to get recognized and it's sort of, it's a self-perpetuating thing. And that you, yeah. you know, he's like, you've got to stop and think about this yeah. we need to come up with some best practices or guidelines for naming things yes. and and yeah like you were talking about well yeah you hear about certain people 
but all the beauticians and 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 that kind of stuff they they had this power to be able to do some stuff because they were working for themselves but who knows their names and you're talking about the Alabama Department of History and how few items they have y right. yeah where's uh, and and there and so this is like a, a way of killing knowledge right yeah, yeah. which uh, so, is like I'm you've got this word that I epistemicide <laughs> yeah. um uh, is that yeah. did you coin that or is that a real word no yeah so okay so <laughs> real quick, I was in a meeting um where we were talking about who we were going to hire next a, a, a new professor and we had a person who came and presented their work and it was based in black feminism and critical race theory. And it was looking at information experiences of black women in the Chicago, in the Chicago housing, uh, in a Chicago housing project. Uh -huh. And anybody who does qualitative work, but especially critical race theory, you have to start with positionality and like how you're related to the research and what your perspectives are. So that that's kind of how you do this work with trust, right? You say like, I grew up in this housing project. So I like know this place really well. If I ever write about disasters, I always say that I was a victim of hurricane Katrina and that experience, like I need to disclose that. So you can understand that I'm approaching this differently than somebody. I'm not going to be a, as objective as somebody else. Um, well, you just use this I phrase can... information experience uh, yeah. that I never, you don't think about that. I mean, it's information, but no, they're different information experiences. I'm sorry, and go we like on. To, and we like to paint marginalized communities as, as having information deficits when they have beautiful, rich information histories, just because we haven't let other people access them doesn't mean we didn't have our stories, didn't have our understandings. You know, like the green book is a really great example of like an information resource that would have been really valuable in one community and not worth as much in another one, right? Not mm -hmm. needed, but yeah. that's a, a, a really good example and, like, and the green book that that was the travel guide right that, that was the travel yeah. guide mm -hmm. for black people uh -huh, in the yeah. segregated south um and so while we started to talk about this professor somebody brought up like well somebody should have told her that this was a research talk and she shouldn't have talked about herself so much and <laughs> i was shocked and appalled uh, but I'm not a critical race theorist. Um, I'm a critical theorist, but I was like, well, but she did that right. And so I'm waiting for one of my colleagues to stand up and say something and like correct that misinformation. It was my first year as a professor and I had only been to a couple faculty meetings. So I didn't feel super confident to say anything. And I could just hear the tide turning against this candidate. Like everybody was kind of jumping on board and, you know, I raised my hand and I said, Hey, I, I there's like her talk wasn't perfect. There are some things that we could discuss, but you know, positionality is the key of trustworthiness and qualitative research. She did that right. We have to know about her positionality and her relationship to this field study and the people involved. So like if we want to be critical, we need to think about other things. That's not the place. And I watched the dean take her folder and put it into a different file pile. And I didn't know what that meant, but we hired her, thank goodness. Uh -huh. But when I left that meeting, I went into my office and I, I sobbed. I like, I mean, full body sobbed. And I was like, what the fuck just happened? 
what is what just happened and i was like that man didn't have enough information about qualitative research and critical race theory to make an educated critique of what her talk was about and so i thought like and he but he didn't have any problem speaking up about with his opinion no yeah that's the humility piece right Uh that's the humility piece um thinking you know when you don't but so I was like, I will, I'd call happened? it a privilege piece, but okay. <laughs> yes. Both of those, uh, both okay. of those things, uh-huh. like a couple of things are happening there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, but what I really thought about is like how many times in the past has this happened where somebody's work was a little bit too different or a little bit too edgy, but we as a community didn't have the resources we needed to understand how important it was or that we didn't have somebody like me with a voice who was willing because I could have stayed quiet I didn't have to say anything right so like how often does that happen when someone is not empowered to speak up or even if somebody does speak up they don't have like the authority to be listened to and so I I started looking I was like this is a different kind of oppression that I just experienced and it's a thing I haven't thought about before uh-huh. And so I found the work of uh, Benita D'Souza, Buenaventa D'Souza Santos, uh-huh. who is a, por- a researcher from Portugal, but he is part of the kind of liberatory pedagogy justice frame. So Friere and Fanyon and kind of those kinds of folks who are thinking about liberatory for educational practices. Uh-huh. And he came up with this idea of epistemicide. And he says that he thinks about epistemicide in these really, really big ways. So like complete destructions of knowledge. And so we can think well, about it, like- So it, it, it's it's like a, 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 the murder of an epist- epistem- ep- a system epistem- of knowledge, an yeah. epistem- epistemology epistemology i'm getting my epistemology and epistemology is um i always thought of it as just um a way of uh uh, um uh i i'm saying i always thought of it as just a way of accessing knowledge but i didn't think of it as the way that it like there are different ways see this is my science person my as a scientist I'm like, well, we get the scientific method. method. Although, and as that's a human, epistemology. yes, and, and as a human, I know that there are things that the scientific method doesn't a- address. I know yes. it, but when it comes to thinking about way of ways of knowing things, my default is, I'm going to sit down and write a proof, you know, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I was just thinking this morning, talking to somebody about a proof. I wanted to sit down and see if I could write by inductive methods you know uh, um it so and then God you bless start, the positivists <laughs> <laughs> then then you 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 made this point of saying it's a, about qualitative knowledge which so, is is uh, i as a statistician insofar as i can call myself that um uh, we have ways of handling qualitative knowledge. And so again, I, 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 my brain goes, oh, well, you just do. But no, 
that's that's sort of the that's where it it goes over from there are certain things that the scientific method is just really not the answer to the way of knowing stuff mm-hmm. um uh, so i it, at at first i'm like what is it epistemicide i mean you just there's there's information and you go get it <laughs> yeah so so epistemology is not just what we know, but how we know it to be true, Mm -hmm. right? So like what ways, so you, the way you know things to be true is by proving it through a proof and by using the scientific method. So you're going to name a problem, you're going to hypothesize, and either your hypothesis is going to be true or not, and then you're Mm going to know something new. And And I might check for biases and I might do all kinds of good stuff. I hope so. But, um, but yeah. If you're if you're doing good research, you should mm-hmm. try. And I should be peer reviewed, and it should stand up to, to be all of that kind of stuff. For those yeah. things. Mm-hmm. But there's all of these ways of knowing, and I think like if we think about like women's ways of knowing, indigenous ways of knowing, there are things that if you are black in Alabama, you experience the world differently than people who are not black in Alabama. And that experience is going to inherently teach you things that other folks aren't going to have access to without talking to you about it or reading about it or having some kind of secondary experience of that. Um, Well, and there's even with this person who was giving this talk and said too much about herself, Yeah, there's a personal way of knowing stuff that, uh, that, I was brought up to to completely discount. Yeah. I oh. my personal experience didn't matter at yeah. all. And yeah. and so yeah. this has been a huge learning curve for me. <laughs> we are often taught that our emotions aren't knowledge when like feelings of uh, being unsafe are a thousand percent information. Mm -hmm. sound you know okay so I have several degrees in information three of them in fact Uh uh so like this podcast isn't about information theory and what information is necessarily but like the ways in which we think about what is informative right out of information school what informs you well like do you feel cold (laughs) right like that is informative, right? Yeah. That's in uh-huh. how you feel is uh-huh. informative. Uh-huh. Do you feel unsafe with a person? That's information, right? I, I you can think pull that... apart later why, but like that's informative, right? Uh-huh. And so we are, especially in Western schools, especially as women, if you are a woman of color, if you have a disability, we are very often trained to lessen emotions, only think through this certain point of view when like all of these other ways of making decisions are valid too. And, and I think, so this is where the second part of my work, well, of other people's ideas really helped me put these ideas together. Mm -hmm. So Santos tells us that we can murder knowledge. Like we can take all the books that one person wrote and like burn them in a fire and we could destroy that. So like the Nazis burned the Institute of sex and that destroyed all kinds of research that we had about trans community. And so like Mm -hmm. thinking about research that was proven with our 
esteemed scientific method that gets destroyed and now we don't have access to that right we that is literally a loss of knowledge for forever mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be those huge extreme murders of knowledge this can happen in much more slight and more insignificant ways but that are still really impactful so mm -hmm. and you've mentioned several of the, we've talked about several of them already in this podcast. So one of the ways that we can experience these kinds of slighter injustices, so I call these epistemic injustices, and this is coming from Miranda Fricker's work. Mm -hmm. uh, she's a feminist philosopher. And uh, one of them is testimony. So like when our testimony isn't believed, even though we're truthful. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the example she gives is Tom Robinson into Kill a Mockingbird, right? He mm -hmm. he testifies, he tells the truth, he's well-loved, but the jury is racist and they don't believe him, right? And we see all kinds of accounts of like Black people not being believed by the police and by mm -hmm. the community, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. we, we see this time and time again about who's, you know, we can think about this in terms of like sexual violence and assault, mm -hmm. like it's he said, she said, right? Mm -hmm. That's testimonial injustice being mm -hmm. pitted against each other. Mm -hmm. Whose testimony are we going to value? And like, if we look at the history of like, which cases gets prosecuted, we know in our societies whose testimony is more valuable than other people. I, I so, can I, I can vouch for I'd had to go to a traffic court mm -hmm. and um and uh, I, I I I had insurance, but mm -hmm. the paperwork got messed up and they charged yeah. me with not having insurance. And so I wrote to them before court and said, this is a mistake. I promise you. And I was like, wrote to the sheriff or whatever it was. So they already knew that I was going to be a problem. So the police officer was in the court. And I can't tell you how hard it was get the, to get that judge to believe me against what he was standing there saying. Yeah. We went around yeah. and around and around and around until finally she looked at the paper and she said that this you never even owned this car i'm like yes that wasn't my car it was the other guy's car that didn't have insurance that's what i'm trying it was so yeah anyway yeah <laughs> it yeah so yeah yeah, yeah. so <laughs> that that is one of that is a really good example of that right of just like when we say something and I think those examples of like that man in my meeting feeling empowered to speak up and that everybody without being critical believed his testimony mm -hmm. and so and like and what I can say for my faculty right is that like also when I spoke up they believe my authority right so like in that moment for me I did not have a testimonial injustice what he had to, and this is another terrible word, is a hermeneutical injustice. And so Fricker defines hermeneutical, and, and I think the way she does it is a little problematic, but she says it's when we don't have the right words to talk about our social experiences. And, oh. and I, I do think that that's true, but I also think that that paints communities at, in that like deficit way, because often we do know what we're experiencing and we do know how to talk about it. It's often other people that don't understand the experience. I don't understand what so, you're saying because they're, yeah, yeah. 
so this happens uh, this happens in multi directions even though Fricker only talks about it in one way so she talks about um Anita Hill's testimony against Clarence Thomas oh, gosh, and yeah. the idea about sexual harassment. She says women always understood and knew what it felt like to be sexually harassed in office spaces. But once we had a name for it, we could start saying this behavior is that, and then holding folks account. I'm using air quotes since it's a podcast, holding <laughs> people accountable for it. Um, uh-huh. But that's, there's, there's power in naming things, right? Like James Baldwin would tell us, we can't fix things we don't name and we don't talk about. And so for me in that moment of that meeting, and I'm like, oh my God, this horrible injustice just happened. What language, how do I talk about it? Well, that was my own Herman. I didn't have the words to explain that experience that I was going well, through. And I, I can totally get why you fell apart afterwards. Yeah. That was a, that was a trial for you. It was, it, it, uh, that moment changed, that moment changed me. I mean, and lots of things change you along the way, right? Like, but that, that moment changed me and, and changed the trajectory. Oh, come on, Uh, Beth, you're talking too much about your own experience. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And, and somebody would try to, and, and if you think people don't try to invalidate it, or like when I get peer review uh, back, people will oh my say, gosh. oh, you sound angry. And it's like, well, guess what, bitch? I am. I mm-hmm. am mad that like my family's records and historical achievements are not included in our state archives. That makes me angry. It makes me upset that the Black story has been excluded from our history. And if it doesn't make uh, and, me and mad, in its place, that, that's a problem. That the, all of these Confederate people turned into heroes. Yeah, I, huh? You know? So that's another one of my injustices. <sighs> so mm-hmm. one of the other things I talk about is commemorative injustice. Oh, and gosh. so how we misremember, how we misdocument, how we miscelebrate people. And I think, you know, in thinking about who we name the streets after, right? Like we can remember people without upholding them. Um, and I think we get commemoration wrong. You know, Christopher Columbus is one of the examples I think about often. And this is, you know, it's really easy for me to say like Christopher Columbus is a terrible person and, and talking about evidence, we can read his journals you don't have to take my word for it. Go see what he wrote, like read his words, his own words and decide like if we should be celebrating him. But then also, right, when we're thinking about epistemologies and how people know if you grew up being Italian and being sold this myth of like this guy representing Italian greatness at a time when Italian people were super marginalized in our community mm-hmm. in the United States. Now this becomes a, a different kind of issue. So like, yeah, I can say, take it down, but I can also understand why other people have this other sentimental attachment, right? It's not this two-sided coin. It People have these ways that they have been brought up within their belief systems. And if we are going to talk across belief systems, we have to do the work. It doesn't have to become our belief system, but we have to do the work to understand how their belief system is constructed. And Uh and if we're not doing that, we will always be yelling into echo chambers. Uh Uh (sighs) Uh-huh. Man. I know. 
Let, uh, I, and I've already, we've been talking for a long time. So we probably, this is maybe as a good place to start to wrap up. Okay. I wanted to ask you um, as a, a um, um, well, first is any last words that you have that you want to just put on the top of this? So, so I didn't mention two other kinds of injustices. So I'll throw those out there really quick. Well, so one of them is participatory. And so us thinking about who gets to participate in discovering knowledge, uh, thinking about citizen science, how do we empower everybody to be part of like this process of learning, of creating data, of studying the world around us and making sure that we can all participate in like our own knowledge development and like this collective knowledge development. And then the other one is curriculum. And this kind of backs into like book banning and, and other resources. So one of the things that I, my best friend is a dermatologist and you know, I have this bad inflammatory skin thing and it looks different on brown skin than it does on black skin. And when mm -hmm. I went to the normal nurse practitioner that I see, she misdiagnosed it because it was not pink. It was brown. Yep. And I didn't know enough, like I'm not dark skinned. I'm light skinned. Right. So I didn't know enough to think about, oh, my pigmentation might change how this presents. But then as I started looking into like medical textbooks, mostly only have pictures of white people in them. And when you look at issues of skin disease, you mostly only see it represented on white or light skin. I think only in the last dermatology textbook that I looked at, only two of the pictures had skin that was like braided dark skin. Uh -huh. So like we're training a whole set of medical professions to only identify diseases based on white phenotypes right and mm -hmm. so you know I've had a doctor who said you know I said oh I feel really anemic I know my body mm -hmm. she dismissed my testimony right mm -hmm. and she said you know well, your doctors. skin looks healthy right and so now she's been trained to look at what looks like normal skin and she's telling me that I'm healthy and I'm like, well, I don't feel well. And I'm half black. And she's like, oh yeah, you might need, you might, you might need a blood test and I needed blood transfusions. Right. Huh. So like how dangerous it is to one for her to have dismissed my testimony of me saying, I don't feel well. I, I know I have anemia and I know what this mm -hmm. feels like. It's mm -hmm. gotten out of hand. And then two for her to make the presumption of like what looks healthy and that there is this normal way that skin should look. Which was and enabled she, by this curriculum that she and learned she's from. she's a great yeah. doctor. Uh -huh. This is, this is a remnant of how she was trained. Yeah. And so, uh -huh. yeah, I, so those are, those are just two other ways in which like our experiences of, of knowing how we get to become knowers and kind of what's left over from like what access to, you know, which textbooks we've had, right. Cause we all become kind of that product after we've interacted with things. And so, uh -huh. yeah, that, that I think is all of my stuff and, you know, <laughs> it, it, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, we could do another hour sometime in the future. Honestly, yeah. we could do, like do an hour on every one of these different yeah. kinds of oh, epistemological injustices, you know, and I could talk to you about them in science, right? So like, you know, subject headings, how do we find information? So you talked about having the scientific method, but in order to do that, well, you have to do background research. But if the terminology that librarians are using are not the same terms that you would use, 
that's a problem in how you're going to access the most recent information. Uh And so, Uh right. These things aren't just linguistic issues. They also become like science. Yeah. The blood oximeters that we use during COVID, they don't work well in dark skin. Mm -hmm. We've known that for 20 years Mm -hmm. and yet we still use, use that to make medical Mm -hmm. decisions Mm -hmm. and we'll use that technology over the testimony of black people. Mm -hmm. And so this, this seeps into, right, if we've trained information scientists or engineers to not think about these cultural issues, this gets replicated in our research. This gets well, replicated so, in the scientific uh, method. You're talking about compartmentalization, which yeah. is a, 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 an epistemicide in itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, that's, and then I could talk about social implications of that, but I'm not going <laughs> to yeah. go there. There are many. Yeah. I, um, um, so I, as a, I just wanted to see if you could name for me, please, three people that you admire and why. Three people that I admire and why. Okay. So first I'm going to say, uh, Kirsty or Christy, uh, Dotson. And so she is, a philosopher at the University of Michigan. And Uh she is someone that talks a lot about epistemic oppression and epistemic violence and the kinds of struggles that we face in these ways of knowing. And and specifically as black women positioning themselves as knowers and the ways that they get violently dismissed in our community. Uh So kind of thinking about Crenshaw's intersectionality, but how that really impacts violence and, 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 violence in knowledge for black women and especially when we're using our voices to speak out um, about issues uh so so that is she is way up there on my list um oh my god am i about to name all philosophers (laughs) (laughs) hey i think that's cool i love it (laughs) yikes um so then i want to say so i'm gonna say my friend gary burnett um, Gary is a professor at Florida State. He wrote this theory called Information Worlds, and it has really helped me, you know, as we kind of think about what different communities value and how easy it is for us to like judge them for believing this thing, but it's easy for us to do it from our own bubble but what does it look like if we actually move into that bubble and think about their values and what they have access to and like how might that change our perspectives and I think I tend to believe that I'm right and I tend to be stubborn about it I think I know what's going on and I'm well read and you know pretty smart Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. I've got a pretty good lay of the you know lay of the ground but his work has really helped me to like step back and think about communities as kind of isolated places and not to be so judgmental, but also he is a super fun deadhead and like dancer (laughs) of all things. Oh, okay. Uh And I think, and, and and a huge fan of poetry. And Uh I think of when I think of somebody that's like doing this important scientific work and still really having fun in their personal life And then also really delving into the arts in this other fabulous way, he truly comes to mind. Uh And then the last person I'm going to say is my partner, Brian. Oh, okay. Is is (laughs) he a philosopher? He is. 
yes, of his, <laughs> he's got, he's definitely got some philosophical takes, but I think like what I think about resilience and being strong and kind of, uh, pushing through challenges and embracing new life. He is a great role model for me. Wow. That's so sweet. Don't tell him <laughs> I said that. <laughs> I'm sending him the podcast. <laughs> Although he, I don't know if he would be able to listen all the way through to the end. He doesn't listen to my podcast, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, look, I maybe uh, you know, and I would, I am, um, I got somebody um, uh, lined up this coming year to sometime talk about education stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I could talk forever about education, and yeah, I have a feeling same. that you have, yeah, some maybe you and I can get together talk some yeah. more I yeah. would really this you know yeah. um, um so to. but would you also please send me maybe some links that I can yeah. put in the show notes I will you, you I got will. my you um, got my email address um I have my email I'll send you um some of the people that I messaged and that I wrote one paper that's about epistemicide and star wars that's uh -huh. like for for general consumption yeah yeah for general consumption so I'll make sure to send that with like some of the more academic -y cool excellent and then, uh, the other folks i mentioned good wonderful yeah. and and uh, uh so uh, you know listeners uh the, this uh, there'll be a lot of good stuff in the show notes so be sure to go look and click on some i'm a things. librarian by training <laughs> so i promise to send my references you will have yeah. reading homework <laughs> <laughs> yep like i said education <laughs> yeah. um <laughs> Um, okay. Well, look, Beth, I'm gonna let you go. We've de I've definitely, you bent your ear for a while and, uh, and vice versa. Uh, thank you so much for coming on really, really. And, and, uh, you know, I'm glad you're back in town and maybe I'll see you yeah. around. Yeah. I'd love to. Let's do some yoga sometime soon. Yeah. That'd be great. Good idea. Right. Cool. Yeah, thank you okay. so much for having me on. My pleasure. Absolutely. Bye y'all. Bye.